Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So it's this tension between like wanting to create enough momentum through your actions, through the scenes that you're playing, to like manifest the change in the community, while also acknowledging that you're just one person and these um, shifts aren't going to come or aren't always going to come unless sometimes you burn yourself out. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Draw Your Dice. I believe this is episode seven off the top of my head, which is great because that's six more than I thought I would have. So... I'm very proud of that. Today's guest that we have that you can hear giggling in the background hails all the way from the Lekwungen territories over in Canada and British Columbia. They speak at or they have presented work at QGCon and they present themselves as artists and activists. I'd like to welcome to the show Paulino Caputo. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Of course, of course. Paulino, before we start getting into the game things, would you give uh, a brief introduction of yourself as you present yourself to the world for the folks who are listening? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so as you heard, my name is Paulino Caputo. I also go by Lino, and my online handle is Magnolian. And uh, yeah, I am a queer and non-binary artist and activist living on uh, Lekwungen territory, as Jeremy mentioned. I am of mixed Italian ancestry, and I also identify as having some psychosocial disability. And I am so excited to be here today and, yeah, to share, share some of my work. 
amazing. Oh, I'm so excited. Me and Lino have been in a couple games together. I've been play testing, and I've actually talked about your game a couple of times, uh, A Quiet Moment, in different episodes of the podcast. So, yeah. Right? Did I, am I messing up the title of that game? Oh, it's uh, so the, A Quiet Moment... I do like that title, but <laughs> but currently it's Travelers. Although I am I am aware, or I became aware recently that Travelers is also the name of a very old RPG or something. Yes, uh, yeah. I, so I am definitely looking for other ideas uh, for names, and that one totally works for me. <laughs> well, I have referenced it three different times under that title. So. <laughs> ground floor title everyone Uh, i'm a goof no yeah i'm super excited i think i think the games that you've created that i have been exposed to are really amazing experiences i think you have a really cool knack for creating an emotional response in the players at at the table me and Lino have played a couple of games together so far, both playtesting their game and also running some trash anime MMO isekai-inspired. Not trash. It's not trash. That's It's a good game. But, oh, but yeah, Charles, if you're trash. listening, I don't... Yeah. <laughs> trash, <laughs> trash anime taste, for sure. But we've been, we've been hanging out in the brain trust for a while. So, um, Lino, the first thing I sort of like to... Uh, do on the show is remind people that game designers are more than just the sum of the games they create. Mm-hmm. So would you kind of talk about what brought you to tabletop games in the first place and then sort of what inspired you to start designing the games you've created? Yeah, for sure. So I really came to tabletop uh, game design I guess rewind a few years and when I went to, so I'm like an academically trained artist for whatever that means. So I went to university, got my bachelor of fine arts. And during that process, I really studied a lot of, I was primarily interested in performance art as, and like new media work as my primary modes of working. And so that was like a, that was the took up the majority of my studies. It's it's not as though the program I was in at Thompson Rivers University was particularly like well funded in those departments. It was kind of like independent study for for a good chunk of it, which was which ended up working out really well for me actually. I felt like I was able to explore things in a really like flexible and intuitive way and it w- it wasn't until sort of like going on my like third or fourth year that I started looking at game development and kind of like bridging this interest that I had going into the program with like what I was actually doing in it. So initially when I enrolled in the fine arts program at TRU, I was thinking about being like a concept artist for um, for like digital games. And well, I found that like I still do illustration and I still do drawing and painting in like smaller scales. I found that there was something about like the critical and philosophical element to to the fine arts program that really spoke to me and like kind of like something clicked in my brain. So then in that latter part of my education, I was able to switch gears a little bit 
and I launched a an independent research project under the UREAP program there, which is the Undergraduate Research Experience Award program. And I did research around queer play, the idea of using role-playing games to explore one's identity. And as part of that, I designed my first tabletop game, which is trash and is... <laughs> <laughs> no, not easily accessible, thankfully, but it was a really big learning experience and got me into designing tabletop games in a real tangible way. And so when I actually get down to designing tabletop games, a lot of times I find myself really thinking about those experiences or the feelings that I want players to have. And this sort of harkens back to like my background in performance art, where I am thinking about setting up situations. I think about role-playing as kind of like a participatory sort of performance where I'm creating the instructional work or the circumstances under which the performance can take place. And so that's been, uh, that's sort of how I start off all my designs is thinking about that experience and then constructing the elements, the instructions, and the things that can like directly invoke that experience as part of the process and then turning that into a game. Wow. Wow. I, I, we had a deer at we, I, I have multiple people. Ugh. I had a, a deer on the show earlier in the series in this season quarter. There's a lot of stuff to figure out listeners. If you're, you know, by episode 14, I'll, I'll finally nailed it. No. But what I like about her input as far as navigating sort of, as you coined it, uh, queer play, it was really, for me, it was really eye-opening to see how that translates into, for me, I questioned a lot about trying to, what do I want to say? This is going to be a long train of thought. (laughs) Take your time. Thanks. I can edit out all the dead air. I wanted to know more, and I know that off-air, shamelessly, not shamelessly saying, but I'm shameful that I don't know more, or I'm not more educated about sort of the queer experience. Not that I think this is me not trying to put my foot in my own mouth, but thinking less of any, any individual because of how they identify themselves. But I can't say that I am well-versed in navigating that pond, if you will, swimming in that pond or holding that conversation. So when I spoke with Adira about why she creates some of her games, she likes to put that identity, explore her own identity and present that identity through her games and in her lyrical games specifically, not specifically, but I think most, for me, most present in there. So I find it really interesting that, that there's this sort of term that you've coined or I don't know if you've coined but this this queer play experience and I really like to tap into that but could you also explain to me what new media is real quick because I'm not I'm not familiar with that art form question mark oh yeah for sure yeah yeah new media is just I mean it's kind of a weird term it's just referring to like art made using digital means so things Mm. like like digital video and photography or digital installation it's sort of like a a mishmash of new tech and sometimes it goes I mean that that was sort of like the extent of the kind of stuff that I did but a lot of times it involves things like 
projections and interfacing with tech in different ways, which I feel like is sort of tied to my interest in like the speculative aspect of of my work as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that explanation. I didn't know, and I'm sure there are people who are listening that don't know. So basically to sum it up, new media is essentially digital media. Yes. To, to, as a catch-all. Yeah. Sure. Great. Well, then, let's start diving into Glass and talking about the experience and sort of the nugget ideas and mechanics of this game, right? So what was sort of the sparking, why this game? Why create this game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after I had gotten out of university, I had I spent, like, the first... Oh gosh, it was it was a long time post university where I was kind of navigating the sort of like aimless 20 somethings where you're trying to figure out like what you can do, what where you're going, like what sort of futures you can make for yourself. And it was this experience that I had where my partner, he has a car <laughs> which is like <laughs> he has a car and so he would he, he would drive me around because I wasn't able to drive because I don't have or I don't know how to drive standard mm-hmm. I do have my in my novice license anyways mm-hmm. so he would drive me around and I would be sitting in the passenger seat and I would be looking out the window and sort of like <laughs> like solemnly like thinking about my place in the world and and what that meant and mm-hmm there is this experience that would occur over and over again where we would be driving around and I would look into these windows of these buildings, whether they were residential or like office spaces, and I would just imagine what it would be like to live there or to inhabit those spaces, to actually like lead a life where that place was part of it. So... It was it was very much like a uh, a Sylvia Plath fig tree moment though for those <laughs> of you who don't know the fig tree in Sylvia Plath there's like this image in the middle of the novel where she's imagining all of these ripening figs on this fig tree and she's like thinking about all the possibilities out in front of her where she's like do I take this one and be like a housewife or do I take this one and be like a new woman kind of thing. But as she's sort of like pondering these possibilities, there are other figs on the tree, other possibilities that are continuing to ripen and fall off and sort of those possibilities are removed. So it was that kind of idea where I felt like I only have so much, I only have so much life or so much energy, so much like an there was a real existentialism about it that I was trying to figure out like what sort of possibilities did I have in front of me and why didn't I feel like I could access those what was it about me or about my experience that was like limiting me from like following all of these different these different lives that I wanted to lead so I wanted to in a very real way replicate that for others and so that's where I started dreaming up like okay how do I get other people to look at windows to imagine their own possible lives, their own like potential queer futures, and then follow those trains of thoughts. And that's where I kind of thought about like divination in a in a real way as being like a tool for 
reflecting on those possibilities. And so I sort of like thought about that divination aspect and then pulled from like story prompt based role playing from games like The Quiet Year and allowed that to inform the design, which was all about like drawing a spread of cards and sort of like using this window as uh, a focus for a possible future and then gradually having them break. Yeah, I think when I read through the game, I I just I started playing. Like just reading through the game, I already started playing as I was reading it, which I think is really great of any text of of a system that's presented in front of me. You know, when I read things like Blades in the Dark or D&D, like some stuff just like kind of glosses over and I'm not really like playing until I'm playing. But this was just like as I read each step, as I read each mechanic or rule piece of it or prompt piece of it, I found myself thinking about this imaginary imaginary place. And it was just it was a really cool feeling for sure. So how <sighs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to be blunt here for a second. I want to really examine how to bring this navigation of queer identity into other games that are not being represented by queer individuals. How to create that experience or that safety net, whether that is explicitly written in the rules or... or gender left out completely of the writing of the game, I guess my current question is, since it looks like this is sort of your motif, your, your full endeavor in creating games and creating your art pieces, what is your opinion for people who don't identify as any sort of queer, um, typing or may see themselves as cis in nature? How do you think we could go about writing stuff or maybe not writing stuff in our games to say everything is welcome at the table Mm -hmm. everything and everyone yeah i mean that's definitely one of the (laughs) the big questions of the decade it seems i i like to think a, a lot about the sorts of the sorts of material that other queer authors have have produced when i think about work from from other game designers like avery alder and lucian khan there's a real sense of multiplicity in their work where even when they are thinking about community or thinking about i recently did a full read through of visigoths and malgoths by lucian khan and it was really exciting seeing the ways that the universe was just like embedded with like these little I guess like seeds of, of of queer conversation where you are thinking about things like what kinds of pronouns the characters are using but also how they are presenting how they're existing in the world and I feel like I as uh as just like one person can't necessarily provide like a satisfactory answer mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. like the the full conundrum but 
there's a quality of like embedding that queerness in like the minutia that I think is really valuable where people can it, it does two things it, it one allows it allows queer players to latch onto things that say like you are welcome here this is mm-hmm. this is safe this is designed for you this had you in mind and then it also for for like cis and het players provides like space for them to see that really explicitly existing within the structure as well. One of the things that like the big name RPGs tend to struggle with is the idea of presenting like these stories in ways that don't permeate the entirety of the work itself. I think about like what was it I don't even remember the name because I don't follow D&D very closely, but that mm-hmm. recent book where they said that something about like like true diversity or whatever would take years to implement. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of hesitance to really go full force in integrating it and, and weaving it into every thread of the structure that I feel gives people the leverage to either deny its existence or to like resist its existence in mm-hmm. ways that doesn't create a safe environment for everyone at the table. Yeah, I think what I want to say is that I agree. I think it's important to explicitly state that this game is a safety zone for any and all people who are coming to the table and anyone who doesn't agree with that can pretty much shove off as far as <laughs> I'm personally concerned when I think about designing my games. And really a lot a lot of these questions are coming from me as, as a designer, but I think they're, these conversations are important to talk about for anyone that may be listening to this podcast. Part of the secondary reason that I'm having this is so that people can get the perspectives of many different designers coming from all walks of life. And while I know it's a big and maybe an unfair question to ask you what can designers do better to include queer navigation to their games. I think I'm going to ask that of of everyone who thinks that is an important piece of game design, because at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, we want to make sure that everyone can play. That's that's how I see it. I want everyone to be able to play at the playground. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And you bring up the, the D&D thing. There was actually a really, I had some players where, what was the game? The adventure is Waterdeep Dragon Heist, for anyone that, that knows the, the adventure. There's a character in there who identifies as they, and I think that's the first character in the adventures that I've seen. But when I presented the character at the table and the players I played with came from a pretty heavy video game, MMO, like early nine or 90s, 2000s sort of style video game. And when I presented the, this actually disband, we disbanded our group over this. <laughs> Great. <laughs> when I presented the character and they were pressed for conversation I in the book it defines the character as someone who prefers to be known as they. And my players both in player and in character reacted with well that doesn't make sense for the English sentence structure so I'm just going to call them by their name. I was like, "Well, no, because that seems 
like you're ignoring what it is they want as a character. And then it like sparked outside of the game and just came to this really, really bad conversation that ended in, in a D and D and the ending of a D and D campaign. But Sounds like you, like a great time. <laughs> it's a beautiful time, but to basically what I'm trying to do is extrapolate that, that there are still currently people who are not okay with the idea of that experience being in their games and do not want to have anything to do with it. So, uh, and being, I mean, this is not exactly the same, but it's even things like, I identify as black, so I would love to see more games, more media that exalts, is that the word I want? Exemplifies, exemplifies black American culture Speaking strictly to American culture and being able to tap into those roots without getting stereotyped or ma- getting jokes or assumptions made about my character that kind of fall off the fall from the bandwagon of identifying the poor black American in America. I think it's I think it's unfair and it makes me feel bad. So that's why I thought that it might make that character feel bad. And then that's what caused that larger conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to identify that things need to be explicitly said so that there is no trepidation of or line walking of like, well, I'll just kind of ignore it. No, don't ignore it. The, the game's not telling you to ignore it. The game's telling you that it's here to stay. So mm-hmm. get used to it or get out. Right. Yeah. And the future is coming as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> the The interesting thing about that, too, is that a lot it seems like one of the things that i i sort of pick up on in that conflict is the fact that it is this isolated incident and is like this this one character who uses the mm-hmm. pronouns as opposed to like a world filled with people like that there's like the whole idea of normalizing these mm-hmm. kinds of things as as like common practice in games i think is part of uh the strategy of like making these spaces safer for players to exist in and yeah that's something that it's it's also weird i mean i'll i'll go i'll I'll sort of hearken back i guess to i have a friend jerry ambers who's a kwakwakiwak elder and she does a lot of like spiritual spiritual healing and social social work in different communities both within her own community but also she works with several organizations here on these territories and one of the things that she frequently talks about is the the sort of self-reflexive process that we all have to go through to like to really to heal those ancestral traumas and then to be able to work through the layers of I guess like social dynamics or the layers of power that exist in the world when we are thinking about people with existing at different intersections of identities the work that Jerry does often invites people to really look inwards as a way of changing how they I guess they continue along their journey I'm not I'm not even sure if I'm able to put the right words to it, but that process of learning and being critical of oneself is so important. And one of the things that I really think about in my games as well is like this idea of encouraging other people to 
participate in that process that like either investigation or just like contending with these factors and it's not even something that i sort of embed consciously but it kind of like shows up in in different games like when i think about glass or even back to my first game as well there's sort of like this happenstance in playfulness with one's own identity that begins to happen and that's something that i feel is really important when you're thinking about like the like the overall social implications of games as well like how are how are we encouraging players and the people playing the games to be able to evolve their own lines of thinking evolve their own lines of self because some people have like really transformative moments with games that i think like i i also want to acknowledge that games aren't like gonna make anyone change their identity like but there is a certain poignancy in being able to actually conduct that performance that I think has a kind of potential in it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that given the proper space or latitude, games, like you said, can be very transformative, both in a therapeutic sense, but also in an exploration sense of ideas of, you know, I always like to coin that there's only two types of characters you can make, the one you are and the one you want to be. And I think what that allows is for, I have, I have many players now who explore sort of different sexualities through their characters and kind of, and I, I think, or I would like to believe that they do it tastefully they haven't been kicked off my table yet for doing anything truly insulting. So, but I can't pretend to be the end all be all of what I know to be uh, queer stereotyping or not. But I find it really beautiful in a way that, because I can see that when they make these choices with their characters, they're also sort of making these choices through themselves. I think, I think for some of my, players at the table, I can see the moments where they're like, would I, would I actually do that? Not asking the question like, this is what my character would do, but it's like, this is what I would do. This full blend of player and character decision-making happening mm-hmm. at the table. And I think those are very beautiful and I think even more importantly, normalizing moments for the culture of tabletop role play speaking to it in a vacuum. I don't know if this bleeds over into board games or anything of that nature, or even video games. I think video games still have a long way to go for that sort of, and when I say, I mean like MMORPGs and things like that, where they don't really care about those um, pieces of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Wow. Lino, I'm so glad that we are talking today. (laughs) I'm so I glad really as am. Well. <laughs> I'm I'm learning a lot and I'm learning more and more about my own personal ignorance as I try to talk about this, but <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the process, baby. <laughs> So before we get into talking about sort of your current works or future works that you're thinking about, I always like to break up the segments with what design trends 
you're seeing either in your own spheres of influence, so think things like Twitter or the brain trust that keep coming up that you're like, oh, that'd be really interesting if that got pushed on or, you know, something that you're like, I would, I hope that people don't attach themselves to this or even some trends that you personally think that you'd like to see more of or some trends that you would like to see disappear like tomorrow. I'm, <laughs> I'm cool with the good and the bad for sure. Oh, that's such a good question. And it's something that I definitely feel like I, like, I don't know if I like, okay, I'm going to grab onto the things that I'm finding interesting around me and just let that be <laughs> let that be what the, this the is. guide <laughs> yeah i've been really interested so i have three things that come to mind mm -hmm. one you mentioned talking with uh, a dearest slattery before i am really fond uh, the more and more i learn about it the more excited i am about about lyric games and their existence mm -hmm. within the world and it sort of like stems back to or stems from like my performance art stuff as well with performance art there's always this weird there's always this weird tension that I experience when I'm designing like these social situations where it's like is the social situation itself the work quote quote is the experience of it the work is the documentation of it that exists afterwards the work because that's the stuff that's going to get shown in a gallery or whatever and so it's like this this constant question of like where does the value lie and so the lyric games are really interesting to me because it it takes something that isn't necessarily always attributed that same value of of being like the work or like it it kind of denies the separation between like the game text and the game itself which is something that I find really really appealing so that's that's a trend that I absolutely love right now and I want to experience more of that or like play with that more I mm. I'm excited for that sphere I'm also really interested in community-centered role-playing. The idea that we're not inhabiting individual characters, but rather playing with the community entirely. Or even if we are playing individual characters, it's stories about communities. And the two artists that come to mind for this are Ben Robbins and Avery Alder as like really wonderful examples of like being able to play in community spaces in ways that explore like collective values and collective decision making they there's really like a kind of utopianism that that seems to be born out of those modes of thinking that really makes me excited because it it doesn't it doesn't always like revert back to the ways of existing that we're currently in but it sort of like spreads into this imaginative space like what if the world could be could be different could be inhabited in this different way which i think just like speaks to my experiences in doing like advocacy work as well and so that's that's like the other that's my second trend and then my third trend oh i don't even know what this is um micro games <laughs> What, what's the term that I'm looking for? But, um, okay, yes. Highland Paranormal Society. So 
the the works by artists like Highland Paranormal Society and like Bats are really interesting to me in ways that they like condense feelings into like really minuscule sort of packages and and present them in a real punchy way and there's something really liberating about being able to just like have like an eight and a half by 11 letter sheet of paper with some like scribbled notes on it and like be like really compelled to play it like oh my god i really want to play tunnel goons right now yeah <laughs> and that's it's that kind of like excitement that is super i don't know just something super appealing about that but yeah i don't even know uh what the title of that trend is have you heard anything <laughs> like... no i would say micro game is but i i also when is a game not a game right when do we give it another word so i don't want to say micro as in that they are tiny but no i a couple things came to mind so when you're talking about lyric games i don't know if you've read adira's chair game or even the machine like the machine the concept blows my mind have you heard of either of those games no i i mean i've heard of them but i haven't actually read either of them yet the chair is a crazy horror game fits on a single page it's basically like reading a poem and it just fills you with so much dread as the player. It's insane. <laughs> and we talked about how that, like when you're playing a game like D&D, you can't force a player to feel an emotion. You can't force a character to feel an emotion. You can't create like a jump scare. You can't create dread in their hearts. Mm -hmm. But when you read Chair, Dread, like when I read it, dread fills in me. I'm scared of what I am sitting on. Give it a read. If anyone's listening, go get the game. It's like three bucks on itch. Great, great experience. Oh, hell um, yeah. And then when you uh, talked about community games, I had Tyler Kremrein on here earlier in the series. <laughs> and his game, Beak, Feather, and Bone, is very much this sort of a map building toolkit but also is a the concept is that you play in this provided map but you can get any map of any city or fantasy city or whatever have you and the idea is that you take on the roles of the community members like the miners the mages the the dock workers whatever have you and you are like the what do i want to say arbiter of those roles and whenever you pick a building and structure it out you have to structure it through the lens of those community members that you control as a player so mm -hmm. i think that stuff it, it was a really fascinating game and it's something i would love to play in like a one shot or anything like that because it's, it's a relatively short game so but it can also be campaign length if you try hard enough um <laughs> And then sort of this concept of micro games, I had Max on here and their games, 0.6e and shit, I always fuck up the name of this, Askydelve, Askydelve, I think that's how it's pronounced. Both of those are like. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. No more than maybe 10, 10 or 12 pages or so of, of game, and you could run months on those rule sets alone. So I think those are... It just shows that you don't need a 300-page booklet divided over three books to create a game, a successful game. I'm yeah. quoting in the air, listeners. I feel like I'm never going to <laughs> write Same. something that large. Same. I'm like, maybe 60 pages. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's the top end, I yeah. feel you for sure. Wow, great. Those are Those are really good things to keep track of. And what I like about those as well is that they are styles of games. When I usually ask for design trends, it usually speaks to maybe like mechanics or themes. But what I like about your trends is that it talks about that there's not just the traditional style of the GM and the combat and the fantasy medieval, whatever have you. There are other game styles that facilitate fun, entertainment, experience. Mm -hmm. And you've listed three that I don't think people think about on the mainstream level, for sure. Can you tell I'm a feelings person? <laughs> no, I had no idea, honestly. <laughs> not based on your character ever, and not based on the game you had me play test. <laughs> the now a quiet moment. <laughs> Love that.
So this kind of segues over into our, what are you currently working on or future projects? So Lino, I know that we have, I have a horizon open in front of me Mm -hmm. and you don't have to speak mainly just to that, but I think what I'd like to explore in this segment is not only the games you're working on, but sort of what themes or, you know, you talked about your influences from trends. If you're trying to codify those trends into the games that you're making going forward, right? So mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff I, I'd like you to touch on. So what are you currently working on? What do you want to work on? Are there any jams that you're excited for? Oh, my God. I feel like I haven't been on the jam game or, yeah. That makes sense. That's a phrase. Okay, I neither have I. Jam game <laughs> for for a little while. So I I participated in um, Adam Vass's Hex Jam earlier this year, which was fun. But it was actually like my it was my first time putting a game out into out out on the internet. That's not that's actually not true. It was a first time putting a game on itch. I will say, <laughs> which was. Which was a lot of fun. I was like putting together like a little game. Anyways, that's total aside. I, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to work on in the coming year, combining like a few different things. One is I've, I've got this like stream of like rituals or ritualism that seems to be showing up in my work, which I'm really excited for. I've been thinking a lot about like faith and magic and how those things have existed in my ancestry Mm -hmm. as well as like how I inhabit them today. And so I'm really keen on like building out some rituals which I can distribute through itch instead of like games. It's a ritual, but I feel like those those things are very intertwined. And then and then there's also this idea of like queer utopianism, which is where Horizons rests right now. And that's a game I've been sitting on for like a long time. I've just been sort of like mulling it over, turning like different mechanics and things over in my head. Because I really had like the question of like how do we manifest queer futures or like how how do we pursue and envision them? And so that's kind of where that game is beginning to take shape. I feel like I'm, mm-hmm. I've, I've got like some good mechanics in place and some good threads that I can pull on, but it's just a matter of like te- taking the time to tease them out, which is something that I'm hoping to have. This year has been a bit of a shit show in general, so maybe I will have some more brain space in, the, in 2021. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting that you talk about manifest queer utopianism i recently tried to concoct a game that was set in like a solar punk style world and i was doing some homework about like solar punk cyberpunk all the punk aesthetic slash (laughs) art slash novel slash game genre pieces but when you talk about how because i know in horizon you you ask yourself two questions right you ask what does utopian queer f- futurity 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> you got cool. it. cool sure queer futurity and utopianism your two questions are what does that look like and how do we get there and when i was studying sort of cyberpunk 
Cyberpunk was written around like the 80s, 90s period or decades. And they were people's conceptualization of the trends that they saw the world moving towards, capitalism and corporation and things like that. And what's interesting is that there are a lot of theories that state when those ideas are put into a consumable format, that they start to breed or fester different philosophies, principles, guiding ideas that make the future happen. So when I was looking at solarpunk and hearing you talk about this utopianism, it we're basically creating the pieces that we want to see become our future, like our relevant reality. And I think there's something really powerful about all forms of art, writing, uh, uh, visual, new, right? All forms of media that we can't see a reality unless we present that reality that possible reality in front of people right solar punk or hope punk is under the concept that we can create a better sustainable environmentally friendly future with the technology we have literally right now it's not some crazy futuristic like we need to harness the power of the sun and when i mean (laughs) that i don't mean solar power i mean literally bring globules (laughs) of fire back to the planet earth but um I think it's important to identify that the work we create puts ideas in people's heads, whether that be for ill or for better. And we're only in the state that we are now because ideas multiplied from the 80s and 90s about what, at least this is me speaking strictly to American-style culture, and I don't know if that uh, speaks to global culture as well, but and for what the limited amount I know about American culture, but... It only became a thing because we wanted it to be a thing, essentially. We analyzed it. We said, these are some potentially good ideas, or someone said it was a potentially good idea, and and now here it is. And we may not like the idea so much now, currently. So (laughs) we would like to move into something else. So I think it's really interesting that your games, at least these current projects or future projects that you're working on, want to show people this is what this utopia looks like. And it's possible... It's literally in the next room if if we try hard enough, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's very beautiful, I guess, is what my full circle is, is that I really like that concept of speaking the world you want to see into play. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like it as well. It's interesting that you talk about like cyberpunk and its origins because it does it there's some there was definitely like a wow cool robot kind of moment like you know that meme where it's like the the Gundam and they're shooting the laser and it's like and the laser says war is bad um, <laughs> and then the person's just looking directly at the Gundam and they're like wow cool robot um yeah. so so it's that kind of thing but but it's it, it's I really like the idea when you are thinking about hope punk and 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 even thinking about things like Afrofuturism and mm-hmm. and just like all these different ways of envisioning possible lives. There's it's sort of like taking that wow cool robot moment and making it that like you can't miss the point or like even if you miss mm-hmm, the point, mm-hmm. you're still bringing something exciting into the world, something that actually does care about us. 
and it's mm. it's a little bit less nihilistic i guess <laughs> yeah 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 post-apocalyptic for sure or you know current apocalyptic that's what i feel like yeah. sometimes yeah so why don't you kind of walk us through kind of how you play the current concept of horizon i don't know if the game is is the game's not is it finished is it not finished oh god no it's not okay finished. cool cool <laughs> Yeah, walk us through sort of playing playing the game. What does that manifest experience look like? Yeah, for sure. So Horizon, I imagine, here's here's another trend that I forgot to mention in the last segment. Mm-hmm. Single player solo games are mm-hmm. something that I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. Love Ironsworn. Yes, yes, love my Ironsworn. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So all of my games I'm trying to design for solo play. So I imagine Horizon being a game that could be played with like, maybe like one to four players, one to five players, something like that. And it's a game where you are imagining a queer utopia. And it's it's not a utopia in the sense that there are no problems with it, but it's a utopia of process, one that continuously works to learn and evolve and write itself as harm is done, which is inevitable. That's just the existence we live in. And so together as a group or as a single player, you begin by imagining what community you're inhabiting. In the rules currently, I'm playing with some like architectural theory <laughs> as like <laughs> as like a ways for generating the community. I'm not totally sold on it, but it did crank out some in- interesting results in an early play test. And, but m- more core to that, more core to the experience that I think won't be replaced is this idea of creating a set of val- a set of shared values that your community abides by. So when you say something like, like we value collaborative decision making or like consent or something like that, then you also follow that step after sort of determining those values as a group, you you follow that and sort of push the limits of the values that you've determined. So you create a series of even if statements. So we value collaborative decision-making even if the process is incredibly slow. And those become like tension points that will sort of present problems for your community. So then as players, after you've got your community, after you've got your values and your even if statements, then you engage in this state of play where you are a group of advocates or people representing different communities in within the community. And as you're confronted with problems, you are able to respond to those problems in I think currently it's like in a little bit of a, a trad way where you've got like these four facets of your body I describe it as and it's facets that relate to like your like your social ability which is corresponds to like the heart in a deck of cards or like your ability to connect with like the supernatural or or your faith or spirituality in that way or the land and that's I can't remember which one I assigned that to probably diamonds. I know my let's own see, game. Let's see. No, no, you're good. You're good. <gasps> Knowledge is diamond. Faith is spade. Faith is spades. Why did I make faith spades? I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking at, a, I look at associations for these things and then I totally forget what the associations were. <laughs> Live design iteration, everyone. Live design iteration. It's great. Yeah. So 
with the with these different aspects of your body you're like tasked with sort of like solving and investigating these issues sort of like existing within them and i imagine that played out through a series of like firebrands-esque mini games there's something really compelling about the firebrands format of like having like isolated games for each sort of scene you want to play out that's so that's where i'm leaning right now and then playing out those scenes you end up drawing a card from the corresponding deck so like i'm solving a social problem i'm going to draw a hearts card and i the way i have it in my head right now is that anytime you draw like a numbers card it's like like things go well for you whatnot there's like a or not even go well, but this just the story progresses in a way that doesn't like shake things up. And then you hold that card. And so with every scene you do, you're drawing a card and holding it. And the idea is that if you draw, you can then spend those cards to uh, like one card being one point, another card being another point to enact like really substantial changes on your community in sort of so it's kind of split up between this micro phase of like playing scenes as individual characters individual advocates where you're gathering these resources working towards these changes and then spending those in a macro phase where you're actually changing the circumstances that are in the community but the problem is is that as you draw these cards if you draw over a certain number right now it's like 20 of, of a particular suit, then you induce burnout. So your one thing that is so just like consistent in advocacy work is, is burnout and like the, the very real price of like putting yourself in those traumatic situations or just like trying to enact that change in systems that don't accept it or won't or continue to resist it. And so I wanted some way to represent that like ebb and flow of like being there making that change but then also recognizing like the limits and the the need to rest recuperate and recover following those efforts so so it's this tension between like wanting to create enough momentum through your actions through the scenes that you're playing to like manifest the change in the community while also acknowledging that you're just one person and these shifts aren't going to come or aren't always going to come unless sometimes you burn yourself out. So there is a bit of like a sobering quality to that, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I imagine play, I imagine this as a campaign game very much where it's like Mm -hmm. oscillating between these two things as you play with these characters, as you see how they evolve Oh, and I forgot to mention the core conceit of it, which is that this is in a a future so distant that it's it's like on a mega structure somewhere out in space, and we have like no memory of the world we live in today. We have no semblance of like the genders that we inhabit or or the kinds of divides that exist here. I I think about mm-hmm. this as like a a bit of a decolonial potential i guess or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or emancipatory i guess is like the the better word for it emancipation from like the the binds of the world that we live in today and the freedom to like imagine whatever sorts of communities that we want how did uh, that make sense <laughs> it did 
how it made sense was that it did. Uh, very good. <laughs> very good, Lino. No, I... What I enjoyed about that explanation is sort of listening to you talk about why the game plays the way that it does and your personal influences, because I know that you do advocacy or you have done advocacy work. Do you still do advocacy work in, yeah. in regular channels? I do. It's definitely like a different kind of advocacy. Well, I mean, is it really? I don't know. It's a lot of like internal advocacy for like the organization that I'm working with, but then mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the with the knowledge and idea that that organization itself is like supporting other communities. We work a lot like with different like indigenous artists in the area and like being able to create a culture that's able to support them is kind of part of my work I guess Mm. not even in I do a lot of like particularly queer and accessibility advocacy actually that's like those are the two that I find myself most centered on but yeah that's it's still part of my lived experience I guess (laughs) yeah no I the only reason I ask is because it cut it the game feels like it comes from a place of experience right Mm -hmm. I think that you have a really good handle on translating the feelings you've probably experienced in in your advocacy work and translating that to a game that I think will is does at least for me it does read well to that codification of of that experience and as you're talking about it I think about like the Black Lives Matter movement for me and how unfortunately only recently like within the last five five or so years or when Barack Obama became president is when I really took you know, my vote seriously. And that was when I was, shit, how long is that? 12 years, 13 (laughs) years? So how old was I? Oh, I was 18. Wow, good for me. I did vote out of the gate, but it's only recently that I started thinking about advocating for things like easier, or at least speaking to American style of, of voting of our federal republic that we are we're not a democracy no one thinks that we're um, a democracy don't get that get that out of your heads everyone but just making voting more accessible advocating for everyone to have the right to vote regardless of status or position in the states um, talking about things like immigration and why it doesn't it's not actually a scary thing for these people for for any person that doesn't have a an serial number attached to them and it's really eye-opening to me the experience for someone you know i'm doing it at the at the skim level of the ocean i feel like you've dived you you've been in the deep undersea trenches of advocacy work (laughs) and it felt tension and conflict and understand where it's probably hard to get your ideas heard or to get people properly represented and when we talk about things like manifesting a utopianism and really setting the precedence for the conceit that we are already a bound community as far as the elimination of different segregations of identification in cultures are, just basically saying that now we re- our community is based on the morals and values that we hold dear 
how do we make a better community solely off of those things? And really analyzing that that's what matters, is that it's values and morals, not the color of my skin or how you would like to be identified as a person. It's, I mean, that does all matter, but the more important factor of how community operates is what can we do to find a common goal, right? I think, I think what I'm trying to say is that it comes to a common common goal point for everyone to follow and making sure that everyone's on the same page and that creates a better community. Mm-hmm. And th- that's sort of like the, the part about like the articulating your values that I really like about the system right now mm-hmm. is just like the ways that it does create like that baseline for like, these are the things that we will, we will take action towards achieving. And like maybe those values change. Like that's it's not set in stone when you make it. I imagine there being a, a rule that I write somewhere about changing those values, but especially when you do explore those tension points. But having that base understanding and that ability to be responsible to those values, because that's what this is: is it's responsabilizing the different actors in the community to to make sure those values are met in a way that honors like the consent that people give when they're participating in the community when they grow up or like learn those values when they come into and inhabit the community there's a real action that's taken in like being able to say like yes these are values i agree with yes these are things that i will be working towards and will be holding others accountable for and when i think about like the tensions that colonialism has introduced a lot of a lot of the there's a lot of tumult in in introducing and imposing values from that are shared among one group of people onto another and so i want to recognize that multiplicity in the way that i'm designing and sort of like frame the like a non-homogenized vision of the future as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a way that actually honors Uh, the differences yeah, maintaining that complexity of the human connection while still mm-hmm. removing some of those colonialistic pieces of of storytelling that are currently present in our uh, facets of media and also how, again, speaking strictly to American culture, how we've come to understand everything, really, how we, how we understand status and stuff like that. For, for our communities. Really powerful stuff, you know, for sure. Thank I think you. that I know you said it, it it sounds like I'm like deep in the trenches, but really I don't like really I feel like I am also skimming the surface. There's like so much deeper mm-hmm. I can go. <laughs> but like but like you said, you're only one person and eventually by yourself you probably will get burnt out and need need to stop. So at it least stop happens. for a little bit. Yeah, and it takes, you know, it takes a village for sure. It can't just be one person, but a single person can certainly light the spark, but it takes a wave of people to really get some change happening. And, mm-hmm. you know, if anyone's listening to this side, I mean, game design is an art. Games are an art form. And sometimes your art says things that you want them to say. And sometimes they don't say things explicitly that you might be saying, but... What I want to say, partially with this episode of the podcast, is that 
for us Americans, exercise your right to vote. You can really help at the local level and really help people out there work towards the values that you want to see in the community. So keep that in mind. I'm not afraid to put that on this show and lose (laughs) listeners for it. So fuck off if you have a problem with that. So basically this section is, I roll on the table, there's a little prompt of something specifically to game design, but lent, so it could be something like marketing for game design, publishing, et cetera, et cetera. Your experience level in any prompt doesn't matter, just whatever you think the best advice, because every I think everyone listening to this podcast is going to be listening at a different level set, either just beginning or a veteran who may not understand something, and you may certainly have insight that helps them. All expert level knowledge is relative to the person who's listening to it. All right. This is the fifth time I've rolled this number on this series alone, but Lino, (laughs) where the dice lands, would you give a quick TLDR tip to the folks listening about marketing for your games or in, in game industry period? Okay, yeah. My tip would definitely be, I would say that know the objectives of your marketing. For some people, being able to drum up sales and like being able to have a consistent audience that can actually support them financially is really important. And so if you're able to articulate that goal, then there are different strategies that you can take to go towards it. But for myself, I've found that like maybe sales aren't as important. And what's more important to me is building out like a robust body of work. And so like the energy that I put into marketing is part uh, is reflective of that. There's not a lot on my end, but at the same time, it affects the style of marketing that I do. So the kinds of marketing for me is a lot of like relationship building is is like getting like being friends with a lot of cool people and being like hey look at my shit mm-hmm. there's there's some really good <laughs> advice i got from artist allison moore who said that the advice that she wished she had gotten when she was an emerging artist was like just talk to curators like be like hit them up be like hey do you want to go for coffee just like that networking as silly as it is can be really effective at being able to share your work with the people that need to see it so yeah start uh chatting with people if you are in that sphere or put out some facebook ads i don't know (laughs) (laughs) Either Maybe do it organic, <laughs> yeah, organic, or use the robot. You know, either <laughs> or. No, it's. I think that's a great tip because one, like I said, this is like the fifth time. I'm gonna use a different dice moving forward, everyone. If you're getting sick of hearing marketing tips, too bad. But it's important to some effect. It's the age we live in. But you're not the only one to have stated that networking and meeting people is a pretty dis- decent piece of the puzzle when it comes to 
getting your work out there, getting help, getting, I mean, I think for me, it even relates to sales. I mean, a lot of the philosophies that I've done research on in terms of marketing, it always comes down to a, what value are you providing for people? And that doesn't mean just what your product is, but how do you help give back? How do you help give more in forms that aren't just a tube of toothpaste or uh, a book or something like that? And another piece that I think, I think Tyler Crumrine talks about this. I think Adam Bell said something to this effect, but just for me, when I since joining the Brain Trust, my I feel my game design skills are jumping through the roof every day when either I'm listening to someone else try to get information for an idea or I'm trying to poke around for an idea and they just have influences that I've never never had before. Like I don't watch I don't know, a lot of 80s or even 90s movies, and I see references or ideas spawning from those. I mean, bread and butter is like video games and anime, so if it doesn't fit in that wheelhouse, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think networking is a part of that marketing puzzle. I know that can be like seen as a community thing, but it's also, you know, Tyler Crumrine talks about how he shamelessly is plugging everyone else all the time. He is constantly retweeting and and saying how excited he is, or even if he has skin in the game, as he puts it, in writing a book, he still makes sure that those aren't the only pieces of content he's sharing with people. And when it finally comes to fruition that you're, you have the courage and support to put something out there, especially like having a network of people that will support you and say, yes, this is great, put it out on the internet, like, that feels really good. And... When that happens, those people will probably reciprocate. Now, obviously, don't ask them to reciprocate because that's the dirty, and we don't do the dirty here on this show. So, or, you know, we do do the quote unquote dirty. Anyways, that's a side tangent, a whole nother podcast show entirely. But it's important to connect yourself with people. I think that it, I think that it, it is important to connect yourself with people, meet people get new perspectives, get new lenses, and that will also help you learn more about the industry, what publishers are looking for, what marketers are trying to do, what other designers are, you know, kind of harking back to your personal tip. You get to know what is the best bang for your buck in terms of time spent marketing because you're asking the right people you've connected with the right people and they can cut off months of troubleshooting or trial by fire just by asking them 100 percent, and i think that that really cuts to the heart of it and also um another like little tidbit is to not be afraid of like the the word networking i know there's something about mm-hmm. that that inspires like the extractionist kind of paradigm Mm -hmm. to relationships which is not great i really think that if you do frame this around like just meeting cool people like getting to know other people who are in the same field as you who are working on similar things there's and and like being able to form those reciprocal relational yeah modes of working with them it's 
it, it definitely pays off in the long run. As, as a community, you are able to support each other in reaching higher than you could alone. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to Absolutely. rely on fucking institutions. Fuck them. <laughs> Listen, I will go deep, deep into talking about that at any point in time with anybody. Quick aside, I I got a level two certification for to be a sommelier for restaurants. Mm-hmm. For anyone that doesn't know, sommelier is basically the wine expert guy, but they're honestly just a glorified manager at the end of the day in the restaurant sphere. <laughs> but people think being a sommelier means you get granted the opportunities to work on branded vineyards and be in restaurants and you can only go to the best accreditation to make your way in the world. And that is not true. That little pin that people get, while they should still be very proud of the knowledge they have, there are other, there's a 65-year-old man in a cellar in Italy right now who never spent a day in any of those accreditations and could probably run circles around you right now with wine knowledge. So don't get it twisted that institutionalization trumps experience. I think, in my opinion, it's quite the opposite way around. It's definitely a weird relationship those two have. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Lino, it has been an absolute blast having you here today. I certainly have learned a lot about myself and a lot about your game design. Where can uh, people find you, chat to you, network with you? All these links that Lino is about to talk about will be in the show notes below. Yeah, so you can find me on the web. Uh, you can find my website at magnolian.com. You can also find it just by searching Paulino Caputo Artist. Although, to be fair, neither one of those things are easy to spell, so that's fine. <laughs> Good thing there are links in the show notes. Yeah. And then, but you can also email me at paulino at magnolian.com. And you can find my games on itch, also magnolian, but or search paulino caputo. And I have a dormant Twitter account, which is paulino underscore caputo, I think. I don't even remember my own Twitter account. It's, it's in the show notes. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a dormant Instagram, but that's for another day, I think. Sure, sure. Paul, you know, it's been, it's been great having you here. I, I really appreciate it. For everyone at home, I hope that you learned a lot, or if you're in your car or wherever you're listening to this, shower, bathroom. It's been great. Bye, everyone. Say bye to the people, Paulino. Bye, everyone. (laughs) I'll see y'all in cyberspace. (laughs) All right, that's a wrap. Paulino, you inspire me to work so much harder for a better future. I truly believe your empathy and drive for a more connected tomorrow can make the difference. Keep up the great work. All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Paulino, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you like the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way over on Ko-fi. Or, if you are unable to donate, please consider sharing this with the person you thought of while listening to this episode and leave a review. Both of those methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me at JeremyH5 over on Twitter with the hashtag I did it. That's I D Y D I T. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.